Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. History is written by the winners. By men. Early editors of science fiction anthologies chose to exclude works by women, and in doing so, made many believe that women did not write science fiction in the genre's earliest years. This is just one example, and by no means the only one. Mallory O'Meara, self-confessed monster lover and film nerd, discovered a similar story in one of her favourite areas, monsters. Millicent Patrick was one of Disney's earliest female animators and went on to design one of the greatest film monsters of all time, the creature from the Black Lagoon. But a jealous male co-worker ensured that there was no prestigious career awaiting Millicent. Mallory decided to set the record straight in her book, The Lady from the Black Lagoon, Hollywood Monsters and the Lost Legacy of Millicent Patrick, and re-establish Millicent as a pioneer of monster design. Mallory, thank you for joining us. But before we get stuck into things, would you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to to talk about this with you three. Uh, I am the author of uh, Lady from the Black Lagoon. I'm a full-time author, and I'm also a fellow podcaster. I host uh, the show Reading Glasses every week with my friend Bria Grant. What did you hope to achieve by unearthing the story of Millicent Patrick and and setting the record straight about her contribution to monster design? Well, a few things. Honestly, the the impetus behind me working on and writing Lady from the Black Lagoon was just I wanted to know. Millicent has been my hero since I was a teenager, and I wanted to satisfy my own personal curiosity because when I found out about her when I was 17 and I'd just seen Creature from the Black Lagoon, like nobody even knew if she was still alive. She didn't have a website. She didn't have a Wikipedia entry. There's nothing about her online. So I personally just really, really wanted to know. And as I started digging into... Uh, her life and her work and in this book, I, I also just, I, I wanted people to know that we've always been here. You know, I, I actually started working on this book before the Me Too movement happened. And while I think it's amazing that there's such a huge push right now to get more women in front of the camera, behind the camera, writing, doing everything, more women everywhere and co-signed from me. But I also think it's really important to to have people know that women all have always been here. We have a, a legacy here. And Millicent Patrick is proof of that. And if I could only unearth her story and bring it to the world then I could could prove it it's funny you say that because I remember I was a massive Star Trek fan and still am but I remember in high school being completely obsessed with original series Star Trek and then discovering that DC Fontana was a woman and I was like yes women have been there from the beginning we wrote Star Trek yeah um so I, I definitely can get on board with that excitement. It changes everything. I mean, finding out that a woman had designed this incredible monster that I became completely obsessed with, it changed my life. It made me realize up until that point, all of my heroes in the monster world were men. You know, Tom Savini, Rick Baker, Dick Smith, Jack Pierce. It never even occurred to me that women did those things. And seeing just one single photo of seeing a woman working on the creature from the Black Lagoon 
it broke my brain open. It was like being struck by lightning and it, you can, you can make a direct line from that moment in time in front of my computer when I was seven, 17 to me becoming a filmmaker later on. I was reading a bit about Melissa um, and you mentioned that, you know, back then she didn't have a Wikipedia entry. She does have one now and um, you're on it as well. <laughs> yes. Uh, it, it, I mean, the Wikipedia is basically all from the book because <laughs> up until that point there was no there was really no biographical information about her and the stuff that was out there was largely false um sometimes uh because of Mill for, for, for millicent's own you know she liked to fabricate biographical information about her which was very fun for me to deal with as a biographer um uh, but it's now now actually people know who she is and she has a wikipedia entry and people um you google her like tons of stuff comes up it's really it makes me really really happy so how did she become erased from history in the first place so the her boss at the universal studios monster shop when she worked there in the early 1950s was a man named bud westmore and he was part of a very very famous big family of makeup artists the westmores uh his father actually george westmore was the man who invented the idea of a makeup department so they were a huge deal in hollywood at the time and he had a massive amount of power and influence not just at universal but in the film world as a whole um unfortunately he was also known for taking people's credit and being very jealous of the other artists that worked with him if they were more successful or more talented than he was which wasn't hard to do uh and after she designed creature and they shot the movie and it became uh, very clear that the movie was going to be a huge hit. They, the Universal Studios publicity department wanted to send Millicent on a press tour to promote it. And up until that point in history, you know, in the 50s, there was no Twitter, there was no IMDb, there was no way for people to really look into the details of of credits on films. And, you know, back then, there was no like 10 minute end crawl at the end of a movie like we get now. There was only like these cards that, you know, gave the heads of department uh, credit for the things that they did. So no matter what Bud Westmore did or didn't design at on in a movie and in, in, in the credits of Creature, it says makeup Bud Westmore. Um, so he never was challenged. People always just assume that he designed everything that came out of his shop. Um, but them sending on Millicent, them wanting to send Millicent on a press tour would be the first time uh, in history for him that some that somebody who designed something. Um, in his shop was going to go in front of the public at large saying, I did this thing. Bud Westmore didn't. Um, not that that was her, that, that was what they wanted to do. They just wanted to promote the movie. And they thought, wow, we have this beautiful woman who's really charming. She also works as an actress. She's used to being in front of the camera. She's the perfect person to promote this film. But Bud put his foot down. He was like, absolutely no way. I don't, I, I don't, I don't want this, per this woman taking credit for this design, even though it's hers. So uh, Universal said, all right, fine, because he had all this power and influence and, um, they agreed that she would still go on a press tour, but she had to lie and say that it was his design and not hers and basically just be out there to promote the movie, but not to talk about her own work. Um, and she did it. She went on this tour and even though she did as asked and she was even chaperoned to make sure that she never once took credit for the design in any of the many interviews that she did, whether on the radio or for, or for magazines or newspapers or what have you. Um, he was still angry because people started to figure out that maybe this woman was the one who designed this monster. Uh, and he got angry and, 
angrier and angrier and angrier. And finally, he fired her. So she came back to Los Angeles without a job. And he took credit for the design until his death. And no one knew. I mean, there were a few people um, in the monster world, like hardcore nerds that had found photos of her working on it and kind of knew or kind of suspected that it was her. But uh, for six decades, people just assumed that it was Bud Westmore. And Millicent Patrick uh, went, off, went, went off into her own Black Lagoon. It really makes my blood boil because I was reading that that they created that catchphrase uh, for the press tour about the the beauty who created the beast, but they changed it to the beauty who lived with the beast. And just because, you know, of his influence, it just, it's so great that, you know, she has finally got this recognition, but it's so, it just makes you so angry that, that these women don't receive the accolades that they are due, you know, it during their professional careers. Yeah, that's the thing. And that I want people to realize is that it's not that women don't like this stuff or aren't willing to do the work or can't do the work. We just have to hire them. We just have to give them credit for the things that they already did. You know, women have always been here. We've always wanted to work in every area of the world. We've always wanted to work in genre. We've always been into sci-fi and fantasy and monsters. You don't have to convince women to like these things. You just have to convince people to give them a job. I was interested in reading that Millicent actually started off working in Disney because I've heard a lot of really bad stories about Walt Disney and how he treated his animators um, and his his voice actors. I mean, I remember reading an article about how he prevented the woman who voiced Snow White from going on any of the tours because he didn't want people to associate the the voice of his beautiful princess with this real life person. And she tried to sue them because you know, she was just left out of everything and she got no credit. Um, so do you think that although what you were saying about Millicent being accompanied on this show tour and everything and chaperoned, do you still think that was maybe still a step forward from what they were getting back in sort of Walt Disney time and, and how women were completely and utterly just bypassed um, in favour of men? A little bit. Uh, I, You know, it, it's tough because I definitely think that part of what they're their hope was is that wow this chick is hot like let's put her out there and have people <laughs> i don't think they were int- I, I don't i, I don't want to claim that the publicity men at universal were like big feminists who were stoked on giving millicent credit for her design i really think it was um the, the same sort of thing i mean i i would venture i, I don't want to put words in Dis- in walt disney's mouth and i can't because he's dead but I, i'm sure that if maybe if she looked like snow white he would have been excited to send her out on a tour. Uh, I, I think that stuff like that really factors into a lot of it. Um, but I don't, I, I don't believe that they were, maybe it, it, it was a step forward, but I think if it was, it was an accidental one. Yeah. I was actually just thinking about that catchphrase about the beauty and the beast. Like clearly it's extremely, um, you know, it's perfect advertising. It's just so bloody sexist, though, as well, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I suppose we can't complain because, you know, like, wow, you know, they they were thinking of giving her a chance to actually claim what she'd done. Um, but even, you know, even the, the catchphrases that they come up with, emphasising the fact she's a woman, oh, how could this beautiful woman create something so monstrous and ugly? You know, the problem is is so endemic. Um, they, they come up with these amazing ideas for, for you know, advertising uh, women, but it, they still keep falling back on the old stereotypes. Yeah, and I mean, and that's something that we we still we see now. You know, a lot of people are only particularly interested in uh, advancing 
the the cause of, of feminism or getting women in more industries when it suits them, when it sells things. You know, people are really excited to slap the label feminist or female-led or, you know, whatever synonym of that uh, you will on something if they think it's going to sell. Um, again, I think that if the woman who was the voice artist for Snow White was gorgeous and looked like Snow White and they thought that they could make more money and promote the movie better by sending her out, they would have done it. I think a lot of something that a lot of the things that look like feminism or uh, might have unintendedly good consequences for women actually are just people trying to make money and people trying to advance their own causes. There's a great quote from Carrie Fisher, who is one of my all time favorite people um but she talks about how george lucas made an accidentally feminist film in the original star wars film yeah um, that's a perfect he, example yeah he never would have made it like that had he realized what he was doing <laughs> no no absolutely not and i mean but that's what's funny is that we as, as female genre fans you know we kind of are used to taking these crumbs that we get thrown and turning them into other things you know i think i also think it's amazing the beauty that created created the beast it sounds so cool but it would have been way cooler if it was like the genius artist who created the beast you know the incredibly talented designer who made the beast um but it's not uh so we um we take these things that they give us and we, we reclaim them as best as we can. You mentioned how like, you know, things haven't changed that much. And the thing is that the numbers of women working in animation and filmmaking, you know, the behind the scenes stuff hasn't grown much since Millicent's time. And especially when it comes to big studios and union back jobs that you mentioned in the book. I mean, why has this just not, got past this why are we still having to fight so hard to be included in these industries because the culture hasn't changed you know things things haven't changed that much um there is things are starting to shift a little bit um in this i don't even want to say post me too because we're still going we're still really going through it um but it, and, I, and you hear lots of grumbling from people that are like, oh, you can't do this and you can't say that. And everything has to be politically correct. And that I, I really think that that's all it is, 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 is the words that we're using. People aren't allowed to say, aren't allowed, quote unquote, uh, as if cancel culture is, is real. Um, but people think that they're not allowed to, to say things, but the culture is different. They might not be able to say something misogynist, but they're still free to not hire women, you know, <laughs> they're, and they, and they aren't, you know, most people, it's, it's very rare uh, to, to find studios or, or filmmakers um, or, or producers that want to um, hire women just because they're, they're, they're talented because they're like, you know what, we need more, more uh, female filmmakers, you know, it's most of the time the only reason they do those things is because they're they're really forced to, or it's really um, it, the the project calls for it. You know, we're all excited that you know Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel got got um, female directors and female writers, but those are female superheroes. Like, yes, that makes sense. Like, I'll be more excited when like Patty Jenkins gets to fucking direct the next Superman. You know? Yes. No. A hundred percent agree. That would be far more exciting. Like that's when things will get cool. 
I mean, I and 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 it slowly it's starting to happen. Like Nia DaCosta getting to to direct Candyman, like that's amazing. But we need so much more of that. And I think the problem is that for a lot of people, you know, there's that statistic that men see if women make up thirty percent of the room, they think that they actually make up sixty to seventy percent of it. I think that when you get a movie like that, people are like hold, people want to hold it up. It's like, all right, well, we have the one movie directed by a woman this year. That's great. We don't have to do anything else. Like in it. People are get so excited and they're like, oh, well, great. We have this one piece of representation, not re- not kind of panning back and, and looking at, at everything as a whole and realizing how small the numbers of female filmmakers and female writers and all that uh, really are. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's it's the kind of thing where it's only going to be really amazing when it stops becoming a story, when it stops yes. being like, hey, we've got a female director. Well, when when people are able to start uh, talking about female directors without having to say female director, like <laughs> just when they're just be able, I know so many, um, so many directors, so many writers, so many authors, comic book writers, artists, whatever. They're just so sick of having to talk about it. You know, I know a lot of people that won't answer the question anymore. What's it like to be a female director? Like they just don't want to talk about it. They like male directors get to just talk about their work nobody's like so how what's it like to be a male director no one's asking them about their outfits nobody's asking them those questions um so like you said when things when it gets to the point where women can just direct and work and write and make whatever without having to constantly consider those things or talk about them um then thing then things will be where they need to be yeah, I can't wait for the time when they when when men get the question. So how do you juggle the the family work balance? Yeah. <laughs> but I love that out there on the internet there are so many examples of a female actor and a male actor being interviewed side by side and the female actor gets asked this question and the male actor jumps in and defends her or says well why aren't you asking me that question let me tell you about juggling my work-life balance so it's really lovely to see that obviously you know there are people within the industry who think this is unfair and when they spot it they're willing to call it out yeah i mean that's really what it's going to take you know women have been busting their asses for decades and centuries trying to get this stuff to happen and there are so many um men in positions of power that are able to make change happen so quickly and that's uh, the hope is that um that will start to happen more often in the book you mention the strength of empathy for a monster in you know as something that's critical for the design of a really good monster and you know the best monsters can reflect the darker parts of ourselves in what we see on the screen and that kind of you know seeing ourselves represented on there is quite fun but but why do you think it's so much more affecting for audiences to have empathy for something that is also meant to be terrifying? Well, what's more scary than seeing a vulnerable vulnerable part of yourself exposed for the world? <laughs> you know, so the, the thing that, that make great monsters great is that they take a, a, a part of ourselves, whether it be jealousy or or uh, fear or pain in some way and, and personify that. And that is so much more affecting for us because we see a little bit of us in there, you know, what part of the reason why creature from the black lagoon is such an amazing monster is because he's the monster of the, of the film, but he's not the villain. You know, if somebody came into my lagoon and threw their fucking cigarettes in it, I do the same thing. <laughs> like, and it really, I think that really uh, makes him 
endears him so much to us. And when we see a monster that we can feel for, um, and, and and sort of see some some kind of humanity, or maybe see um, the monstrous in us, it um, it makes us more vulnerable, and it makes us look at our you know. No one wants to look at themselves critically in that way. Nobody wants to think about themselves in that way. And it really, it, it, it has the twin power of making us more empathetic and uh, make, makes us feel a little bit more human while at the same time uh, scares us by seeing how close we are to those things. I think you make a really interesting point because thinking about Creature from the Black Lagoon and all this kind of thing, it's the whole point of horror is taking something to an extreme. And I know that you have extreme horror, which is really, really extreme. But it's like you saying, you take the idea of jealousy and just expanding that out and creating something that you can almost see how it would get there. Those are the most scary things. Like I've been thinking about Hannibal Lecter and uh, I want to rewatch The Silence of the Lambs because, you know, it's lockdown and you're churning through all the movies you love. And it's just that wonderful idea of how intellect and a passion for cooking can just go that little bit extra you know, mile or whether it's um, werewolves that, you know, you take the animal instinct and take it to the extreme. And it's just, you're right. It's being able to have something terrifying that's still very, very grounded. Yeah. And I think that's why, um, I mean, Millicent definitely. And I, I hesitate to say that women are naturally better at, uh, at creating characters uh, because, you know, we don't have a lot to compare, you know, nobody has designed a major monster for a monster, a big monster for a major motion picture since Millicent. She's literally still the only one. So we don't have a big pool of comparison here. Like it's not like we can take a big group of monsters designed by women and compare them to a big group of monsters designed by men. Um, But I think because of the society that we live in, women are forced to be more empathetic and uh, to consider people more. Um, And I think that makes them, them very us uh, very good at at creating creating monsters creating characters creating heroes creating villains um and i think it's i hope it's something that's nurtured there's also a, a line we you don't want to cross to make it too empathetic and too sympathetic because then it stops being scary surely if you sympathize too much i mean how do designers get around to making it look grounded and human and relatable and yet at the same time make you want to scream and hide behind the, the cushions well, that's really where the magic is. I mean, for Millicent, when she was working on Creature, she worked really hard on the design of the face to make him just human enough to elicit some empathy. But at the same time, she did a lot of research into Devonian age fossils of fish and reptiles so that the design of him has the ring of truth, you know, and especially, I mean, for us now, it's a little bit different, but for teenagers in the 1950s, it wasn't out of the, out of the, out of the realm of possibility that a monster like that could be in the rivers of the Amazon. Um, So it's about marrying that empathy with, with a monster that could be real. Yeah. I mean, I always think back to Frankenstein and, and Frankenstein's monster being, quite childlike and that does elicit a lot of empathy from the reader but at the same time it's it's almost scarier because of that because you have a childlike mind in the body of something that can wreak extraordinary havoc and it's almost like that that empathy feeds into the fear in a way, uh, which I thought was, you know, it's it's an excellent example of creating a a really interesting, layered, complex 
monster, even if that's, you know, on the page versus the screen. But, uh, you know, again, that's why uh, Mary Shelley, uh, founder of sci-fi, everyone. <laughs> I, I, I completely agree. And that, I mean, that's what, that that's re- really where the secret sauce, that's the magic of making them. Um, and it's no, I, I don't think it's no, it, it's an accident that Creature from the Black Lagoon and Frankenstein have been so enduring. You know, we have, even though Creature has never been remade, I mean, you can kind of say that Creature from the Black, or Shape of Water is is a sequel to Creature from the Black Lagoon, which I choose to believe it is. Um, you know, these, these monsters have been, they're part of our culture now. They're, it's very, when you say Frankenstein, like if I say, oh, uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to Frankenstein dinner tonight and put together a bunch of different things. Like you understand what I mean. They're, they're really, really woven deeply into our culture now. And I think part of the reason there, they've had such, such staying power and people want to keep revisiting those stories and those monsters and, and look at them from different lenses is because of the, the, uh, skill there was in designing them. So, given the fact that you know, as you point out, um, women are the ones who, not just in real life, but definitely in real life, as well as in media, in films, in books, are the most likely victims um, of monsters. Why is it so important that we, as women, are part of the process of creating and exploring fictional monsters? Because we're the ones who have to deal with them. It always makes me laugh that people ever question a woman's ability or um, the the ability to create horror or her uh, reasons for her watching it. You know, because women deal with this stuff all the time, um, and, and because women are forced to be like when I leave, if I you know I haven't been able to go to the actual movies in in almost a year now, but when, if I go see a scary movie by myself and walk home and then go walk home, I have to actually think about what it would be like (laughs) uh, if a monster attacked me. Like I don't feel safe Um, in that moment, I think makes, makes women like better at writing horror and better at at writing monsters and, and, and that empathy and that like forced empathy makes us, you know, we're, we're the ones who have to deal with it. And I, I always laugh because I'm just like, men are the ones who have created almost every, ma- you know, every major horror franchise, all the, all the big things. And I'm like, but you've never had to think about this stuff. Like I, I, w- I love to turn it, I would love to turn it around on a lot of these male creators and be like, well, why did you make this? Why did you think this was a good idea? Like, do you have any experience with this? Like what uh, women have to think about it so much that I think they're naturally uh, gifted and better at um, at being able to tell the stories. You know, this reminds me of um, one of those kind of random Twitter questions that went round, um, you know, a couple of years or months ago. It actually happens fairly regularly. Um, you know, where a woman is is just asking the world at large, like how many women, um, you know, regularly walk home with their car keys or their front door keys like held in their hand. Um, like, do you get your keys out, you know, before you even need them? And like almost every woman was replying saying, yeah, this is how I walk. And I mean, I'm one of them as well. If I have to walk alone at night, then I always have my hand on my keys. It's like a kind of, and, and, and it's so kind of sad that that's the case, but genuinely we, we feel threatened kind of by, by the world. And, and so many men in the replies were like horrified 
<laughs> they were reading them. There were guys saying like, oh my God, I had no idea that the scale of the problem was this big, that so many women, that it's become a universal thing for women to walk around like this. Yes, I can't, I, I truly can't even imagine, I can't imagine not feeling that. And I really think that experience like makes makes women naturally great at telling horror stories you know naturally great at being able to to create those things and write those things because they they have to live it all the time same thing is for any any marginalized person um and that's why it's always interesting to me when people say oh this is this and that is the golden age of sci-fi or golden age of horror or or this particular genre is dead and i'm like how can you ever say that when all the other types of people in the world haven't been able to get get, get a chance to tell those types of stories like maybe uh, horror wouldn't be dead and boring to you uh, if we gave the ability to um, to have scripts funded and movies funded by types of voices you've never heard before. Well, I think women have an interesting angle on it because if you think about all the monster movies, and I mean like proper big Godzilla kind of monster movies, the terror of that for humanity is always being knocked down a step in the food chain. For me, yes. certainly, yeah. So whether it's zombies that are trying to eat you or a werewolf or whatever, it's being knocked off the top of the food chain. And I kind of always feel that men never quite get that because in a social sense, they are always top of the food chain, the top of the social food chain, and women are always the second one down. So it, it is natural to us to kind of not necessarily be like prey, but kind of always feel that there's something threatening us. Whereas if you're at the top of the food chain, if you were the hunter, the werewolf, the the cis man, whatever, then you're not necessarily going to have that same unique understanding, I don't think. Um, that's just where I tend to sort of think about it. Like you say, when you're walking home at night with the, the car keys and things, and it could as well be a man at the top of the social food chain or a werewolf at the top of the actual food chain. Yeah, I mean, a, ma a man's worst fear is being treated like a woman. <laughs> Yeah. I, and I was thinking that perhaps men tell these stories where they're, you know, it, it's the fear of being toppled over and it's the fear of women coming and claiming their place alongside them. Yeah. That kind of is the story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and you see that so, there's so much misogyny baked into horror um, because, you know, men are very afraid of women and female power. I mean, that's so much. So, so many of the f the most powerful figures that you see in um, in horror are men being being afraid of powerful women. I mean, that's that's so much of the witch trope. You know, is that um, men being afraid of women who aren't aren't afraid to to not be beautiful <laughs> and aren't be aren't afraid to be unmarried and aren't afraid to uh to do all those things that are considered witchy like that's that's horrifying for them picking back up on on how you're talking about empathy and the, the need for empathy for monsters and actually seeing ourselves in monsters one thing that i thought of was that perhaps men are also good at writing and creating monsters because they're representing a kind of part of themselves in, oh, for sure. on screen. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, absolutely. That, that, that's yes, absolutely. 
or they're thinking of something that is terrifying, would be terrifying to them. Um, mm. you know, I'm thinking of, of the very few female monsters, uh, like in legend, Meg Mucklebones, the swamp creature there, you know, she's so scary, but that's like the most scary thing to a guy is a woman who isn't wearing makeup, isn't trying to look pretty living by herself in the woods like that. <laughs> that's so scary. <laughs> Well, that and Vagina Dentata. Yes. I do love that film. (laughs) But, I mean, you are a complete horror and monster film nerd. So I would like to give you space to just have a nerdgasm, uh, (laughs) (laughs) basically. So... You know, we've mentioned the the misogyny in, in horror stories, you know, from sexy vampires to the, you know, the the girls who have sex, they always end up dying first. I mean, what are some of the most egregiously sexist tropes you have come across in these kinds of films? And and how do you how do you also marry your love of the genre and your love of these kinds of movies with that sexism? Uh, there's an amazing writer here in the U.S. Um, his name is Hanif Durkib, and he has these amazing books. Um, that he, the, the most uh, recent one, I think, is called Go Ahead in the Rain. Um, but he's a cultural critic. He's a great writer. He's mostly a music writer, but he talks a lot about how um, it, how truly critiquing something, critiquing, I mean, and not like shitting all over it, but really critiquing and looking at something and wanting it to be better and thinking about the ways that it could be better is truly an act of love. Um, and I think that that's the uh, the lens through which I look at so much horror because um, I do love it. I love it down to my bones. I love monster movies, the cheesier, the better. Uh, and the ways that I think about how they are completely suffused with misogyny and racism and homophobia and xenophobia and all these awful, awful, the worst parts of humanity, uh, thinking about how they could be better without those it is really, it, it's an act of love for me. I mean, what the, one of my least favorite tropes is like you mentioned, the virgin dying first this idea of um a woman's purity um the concept of purity at all and how if a a woman chooses to, to to throw that away then somehow she was asking for it then she was um she's somehow ripe for the for the murdering in whatever fashion that uh that you choose whether it's be being eaten by a werewolf or you know drained by a vampire whatever it is that really drives me nuts and um I love there are there are movies that are have been coming out for the past few years that um, have been created by women or people of color or queer people that are really interrogating those things and I think that is that's the future of the genre. Um, I'm still holding out for all that I want in the world is just a gi- like a giant monster movie as in not the movie is big but the mo- the monster is big. I want a, a big scary monster movie um, directed by by a woman written by a woman with a monster that's created by a woman. Um, that's what I'm hoping for. Um, cause I'm just so excited to see the things that I, I love monsters. Monsters are cool. Like people are always asking me in interviews, like why I love monsters. And there's many cerebral intellectual answers to it, but at the core of it, like I just fucking love them. Monsters are cool. They're fun. And, um, I'm so excited to someday in the future, see so much more of the things that I love and seeing fun, cool monster things that interrogate bad parts of society, but made by the people, um, that those are, that, those types of movies originally look down on. 
I have to say that the one that always gets me is the whole idea of a woman having sex and she has to be the first to die. And I have to give a shout out here to Alien 3, where Sigourney Weaver has sex and it's Charles Dance who ends up dying, which is a nice reversal of it. I thought that was quite cool. But so, yes, I mean, Sigourney <laughs> Weaver is really the queen of many of our worlds. But I, I mean, you know, there's always that 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 famous story of part of the reason why she's such a great character is because her she was originally supposed to be male. And they the pe- they wrote her with real thoughts and feelings and <laughs> decided to, to have it be played by a woman. But I mean, the joy of a horror movie is, yeah, okay, so there might be a woman who dies first because she's had sex, but that's going to be the first death out of about six. And it's a case of, you know, everybody kind of gets their comeuppance and there are some truly obnoxious men that genuinely get got. And you kind of go, oh, that's, that's quite satisfying to see. So, I mean, in, in a weird way, I can cope with those movies because it's sort of, it's a case of so many people die and usually they're justified murders. So when I say justified murder, I've been talking to my daughter a lot when we watch um, Doctor Who And she's like, oh, did that person die? And I go, well, that's okay. He died. But do you remember how he betrayed them? So it's kind of all right for them today because they've done something bad and now they're paying the price compared to someone who hadn't done anything, for example, and was just tagging along and ended up being killed. So I can well, Charlotte, I, I've got a butt in here. I mean, yeah. I think maybe your lawyer training has led you astray. <laughs> I'm not sure that that's going to hold up in a court of law. No, but it's <laughs> I not say, a court I of law. I'm looking forward to the next monster movie made by your daughter. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it speaks on a primal level, doesn't it? It's just the girl who having sex is just one of many tropes where you are destined to die and i think there are quite a few that relate to men and men have their own in horror movies have their own problems and flaws that you see time and again but you know you just kind of dismiss them for me personally i do anyway uh you know i just think it's such an equalizer when it's in a horror movie and just everybody dies and yeah okay they died first but you know the guy over there who was a complete asshole got killed via the asshole so it all kind of you know balanced out so we all know not to piss off Charlotte. <laughs> not in fiction anyway. <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, my kind of counter to that would be, do the men who, I guess, have the justification for the men's death, does it relate to them being a woman or being, you know, pure or something that is associated with femininity and being female? Um, does it sort of happen with toxic masculinity or is there you know that would be my question if if, is the is there an equalizing factor in the you know how men are portrayed or or what makes them kind of get the justification to die i mean it really depends on the uh, on the film you know the slasher genre is not my particular area expertise just because i you know i'm not as into slashers as as i am monster movies i've seen all the all the a lot of the classics not all of them um but when you look at movies like you know the the night on elm street nightmare on elm street um friday the 13th um Halloween also those films I mean that's the that I think that's the frustrating thing for me um is that they're portraying all of these people um as equally like all a men has to all men have to do is just be stupid <laughs> but for women it's like oh they've decided that they like they, they've had sex so they that they get murdered and like those are looked at as equal <laughs> 
For more uh, discussion of horror and horror stereotypes, check out our episode, The Cabin in the Woods. <laughs> oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Where we discussed a lot about uh, horror stereotyping. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that we did. <laughs> Okay, I mean it's it's been awesome chatting to you, but we, we might want to wrap up a little bit. But I thought maybe it might be nice to ask if you had any other women in horror and films who you think should be more widely known. I, I do, but I can't tell you because I am working on putting together book proposals about them. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> I know that there are more out there. Have you got any favorite films made by women that you would like us to recommend to go out and see them? Oh, I have so many. Um, there, I always like to recommend ones that you can watch that are, are like current because, uh, you know, the filmmakers are still living and they want to make more money and they live right now. Um, there are we're, there are so many fantastic women that are making movies right now. Um, you can watch, I think, twelve hour, the film Twelve Hour Shift uh, by my um, uh, friend. Uh, reading glasses co-host uh just general one of my favorite people in the world Bri- bria grant it is a black comedy amazing uh people have been describing it as a nunsploitation or nurse nur- nurse exploitation movie that just came out um satanic panic directed by chelsea stardust riot girls directed by ivanka vukovic um uh culture shock by Gigi sal guerrero raw is a great movie promising young woman just came out it's fantastic uh my favorite movie of last year shirley which is a um sort of a reimagined biopic of shirley jackson who's my favorite writer uh the crime scary crime drama that came out on 2000 i think yeah it came out last year blow the man down um there's so many really great ones uh, little wood by nina costa um there's just so there's just so many really really great movies that are uh, scary movies that are coming out that are created by women and what would be a really good monster movie not just a scary movie but a proper old school monster movie that you could recommend there aren't many uh honestly that's oh, no. the <laughs> there really aren't many uh this the the sequel of the puka movies uh the bloomhouse movies the monster in that was uh designed by a woman which is exciting but there still hasn't been like a big um monster film that was directed by a woman yet i mean we've got new godzilla we've got new predator we, we have new so many things but no one has tapped uh, a woman to either design or direct um any of those and i'm really really hoping that that will change i would kill for a woman directed godzilla movie i would lose my mind king kong any of those i i really i i I am like i'm very excited for godzilla versus king kong like i cannot fucking wait for that movie i love giant monsters um but there there aren't any made by women right now which is really really frustrating and I'm, i'm really hoping that changes if you could make a monster movie, then what would be your monster that you'd want to do? What would oh, you werewolves. werewolves, werewolves for sure. I'm obsessed with werewolves, and there's actually um, there's an amazing movie by um, the director of an of a almost perfect film called Tiger. Tigers are not afraid by Isa Lopez. Um, amazing movie that came out in 2019, I believe. Uh, incredible, incredible horror film, just absolutely masterful. Uh, and she is working on a female monster movie. She's going to r- write and direct it, and Guillermo del Toro is going to produce it. And that is possibly like my most anticipated film of all time. Um, so keeping an eye on that. Um, and if when that comes out, that might be like my perfect horror movie. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really fun. And yeah, it's it's great. Um, when I, you know, Rebellion sent me a copy of your book and I picked it up, I was like, okay, well, this is perfect for us because it's doing absolutely what we hope this podcast does just more generally for people in genre. Um, you know, just highlighting that women are doing great work. We have always done great work and we need to shout about what it is that we do because otherwise just we're not going to be heard. Yes. Yeah, seriously. I mean, that's that that's really the hope. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.